Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is From Merrill to Hightower to $3 billion RIA, How Verdant's Doubled Twice. It's a conversation with the founder and CEO of Verdant's Capital Advisors, Leo Kelly. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make the series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. Happy but not satisfied. It's a common refrain we hear from top advisors and their teams who are ultimately driven to change not because they're unhappy with the status quo, but instead because they feel a pull towards something better. Such was the case of Leo Kelly and his team at Merrill, the Kelly Group. Having built the business to some $600 million in assets under management, the pull of entrepreneurialism and being a true fiduciary to their clients was too strong to ignore. So in 2012, they made the leap to Hightower, and in five years, they doubled their business. But by 2017, Leo felt Hightower was going in a different direction than they were. That motivated them to make yet another leap, this time to full-on independence, launching Verdant's Capital Advisors. Five years later, the firm is now managing $3 billion in client assets, more than doubling the business once again. So what's driving all of this incredible success? Leo describes Verdance as a collaborative family culture, one based on building a business with the client as the architect. And it's that same ethos that drives their platform-based business, giving financial advisors access to client resources, all with the goal of making it easy for them to deepen relationships with clients, create new relationships, and grow their businesses. In this episode... Leo and I dig into the key ingredients that make up Verdance's formula for success. He shares how this start as a copier salesman from Trenton, New Jersey, laid the groundwork for his entrepreneurial mindset. And Leo discusses life at the wirehouses, what he liked best and what was missing. He shares what initially attracted them to Hightower and why they chose five years later to leave the platform to launch their own RIA. We discuss Verdance's hyper-focus on the culture and how that is not just a value proposition, but a way of life. Plus, Leo talks about the investment from Emigrant and the value of taking on the right capital partner at the right time, and much more. It's an incredible conversation with lots to discuss, so let's get to it. Leo, I am incredibly grateful for your time today. Thank you so much for showing up and being willing to have this conversation with me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the uh, podcast. 
Thank you. All right, lots to talk about, so let's get to it. Let's start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about yourself and mostly your path from being a research analyst at Bloomberg to a nationally ranked advisor at Merrill. Sure. Great. First of all, the story actually starts before Bloomberg. I have a weird background. I actually didn't go to college until I was in my 20s because my senior year of high school, I grew up in a very modest background, one would say poor, and I was selling copiers my senior year of high school. I'd go to school for half a day and sell copiers for half a day. And that's really where my entrepreneurial spirit was born. As a 17-year-old, I was running around trying to make some money got out of high school and decided to continue with the copier business and did that for about five years before I woke up one day and said, this is not what I want to do the rest of my life. But those skills really carried forward to obviously going on in the business. To answer your question directly, I started at Bloomberg while I was still in school. I was going to school for finance. I was passionate about the markets. And I was, uh, as an analyst at Bloomberg, in the derivatives vital statistics department, it was about as much market geekiness as you could get. Mm -hmm. We were digging in deep uh, to markets and how they function. And it was really a fantastic learning experience in terms of how the markets work and what we see from the outside and what's actually occurring on the inside of the markets. But I knew when I was at Bloomberg that it was just that, a learning experience and not a career that I, I wanted to be in front of clients and I wanted to be a problem solver. And I had the fortune of having one of my professors in college ask me to go meet with her husband, who was at the time running financial planning for Merrill Lynch. Huh. And so I looked at the opportunity and rather than go to New York and be a trader, I spoke with Merrill. It made sense to me, financial planning. It made sense where the business was headed. And I went and joined Merrill. So my first job with Merrill was actually on a financial planning desk, answering financial planning questions from advisors all over the country. Mm -hmm. So again, a learning experience, building my portfolio, if you will, so that when I was ready to go into production, that I would have something to offer clients and advisors. So I did that for a couple of years. And then actually my last job at Merrill, I was the East Division Manager for Financial Planning. And that's when I met my mentor and my friend, Bob Costas, who is a legend in the business, who suggested I come down from Trent, New Jersey to Baltimore and start my practice in Baltimore. And I did that in January of 1999. So that's how I managed my way into production, as they say. I love it. What a great story. So you mentioned that there were a lot of transferable skills that you learned selling copiers and then being an analyst at Bloomberg that contributed to your success. And our listeners will soon see that a successful business you certainly did build. So what were some of those skills that you learned in those early days that contributed to the success of the business you ultimately built? Sure. In the copier business, I think I really took away two really important lessons. One is how to communicate and deal with people. Selling copiers is an incredibly difficult business. They're not the most loved product uh, by business owners. They're more of a necessity and everybody seems to be pretty much the same. So you really had to differentiate yourself as someone who they believed in that you would do the right thing for them and be one of their partners. And at a very, very young age, I learned how to communicate how to answer problems, 
and how to stay in contact with clients and build relationships beyond the transaction. I thought those were fabulous lessons to learn. For sure. I think the other big lesson I learned was how to handle rejection. The reality of that business is it's hard and you get a lot more no's than yeses. And so in our business, especially as a young advisor trying to build a business, handling rejection is as important a skill as almost anything else that you have to deal with when you're first starting out. Indeed. Okay. So let's talk then about the business you built as a financial advisor at Merrill that ultimately landed you in the elite circle of champions. So what were some of the things that you think you did differently than others to build that business? Mindy, that's a great question. I think, first of all, I was motivated. When I left Merrill, my wife is a pharmacist in New Jersey, just starting out, and I was doing well at Merrill. And she could be a pharmacist in Maryland. So we took a 75% pay cut to come down here and start this business. And I was only being paid on the assets that I brought in. So, you know, as they say, Columbus burned the ships. We came to Maryland where we didn't know anybody and we were highly motivated. So that was probably the first reason for success. Specifically, financial planning at the time was still not the core element of financial advice that it is today. There was still a large contingency of advisors that wanted to keep the business kind of quote unquote old school and make it about stocks and, and information about stocks. And we were out there solving clients' bigger picture problems. We were talking financial planning. We were building long-term plans. We were doing asset allocation work at the height of the tech bubble. And so we were able to talk to clients in a manner that was different than the norm And that really appealed to folks. And um, we were able to build a significant asset base in a short period of time uh, because we were using those skills. Interesting. Okay. But over time, financial planning became more commoditized, probably less of a differentiator. So over time, what was the secret sauce that landed you in the circle of champions? There's a couple different pieces to break down in that question. The way we built the business that we built was one, we were incredibly diligent, right? We were not running a sales operation. We were running an advisory operation. Mm. And we looked away from products and let's just say some of the hot products that were really the products of the day. And we really just focused on long-term financial advisory And it really did pay off. We avoided a lot of the catastrophe of the tech bubble. We were in good position going into the financial crisis because we stayed focused on what was important to the client. And I always say, build a business as if the client was the architect. Mm. And if you stay focused on that, you'll have success. I think the other area that really helped us build our, our business to a significant level is we were really out working in the arena with much higher net worth clients. And we weren't afraid to be in that arena. We were bringing in much larger clients than the normal advisor. And then I would say the final piece, Mindy, and this was a pet peeve I had at Merrill Lynch, and I really do still have it today in the business. And that is we invested heavily back into our business. So in an environment where advisors were quote unquote focused on payout, and taking their money out and stick it in their pocket. We were pouring the money back in. We were treating our practice at Merrill Lynch like it was a business. And we were investing in human resources, technology, whatever we had to do to get an edge for the client. 
That's the part, the last part you just mentioned, that was the most unique as far as I hear it. In the early days, more than say a decade or 20 years ago, advisors were not doing that. I mean, independence was only for somebody that either was about to get fired or a very rare individual. And um, it was unheard of to do things like that. So I think that's probably most unique and interesting. So let's Do you remember how much were you managing when you left Merrill to launch Verdance, which is the business you run today? When we left Merrill, we had about 600 million under management. Our headline read 700, but again, the wirehouses include debt as an asset, which I always (laughs) thought was interesting accounting. So we were managing about 600 million. Okay. So- you're now at about three billion, I believe, and so that's five times growth in what period of time? Well, since 2012, we had really two stages of growth. From 2012 to 2017, we went from 600 million to about 1.2, 1.3 billion, and then we went from about 1.2, 1.3 to three plus in the last five years since becoming Verdant's. Okay. So I'm going to want to spend time really digging into that. What what do you think are the things most responsible for it? But if we can just give our listeners a little bit of perspective. So Verdance is a business that now manages about $3 billion in assets. In how many offices, Leo? We have an office here in Hunt Valley. We have one in Alexandria, Virginia, and we also have a presence in Los Angeles, California. Okay. And how many staff and partners, how many people work under the Verdance umbrella? Yeah, all together, including myself, we have 40 people. Okay. And you mentioned high net worth clients. Give us a sense of how high net worth the average client is and the kind of work you do for them. Sure. Verdance is actually broken down into different businesses. It's one of the core attributes to the way we operate our business. We call them growth lines. When we talk about the type of client that we have, Mindy, it really has to be broken down into the business unit. So Verdant's family is our multifamily office business, and those are minimum of $25 million and higher. We have clients from $25 million up to several hundreds million, and those clients have a different delivery model than do other facets of the business. Our ultra high net worth business is essentially that 10 to $25 million client. And then we have our wealth management business, which is the below 10 million. Mm -hmm. We also have Verdance Pro, which is a pro athlete business where we have former players in the NFL and in college that are managing assets for players. Interesting. Okay. What an interesting business mix you've got. So let's also talk, what does the name Verdance mean? How did you come up with that? Yeah, Verdance, when we first went out to get a name for our company, the funny thing is for anybody who ever starts a business, you go in and you think you're going to have a name like Clearview Financial or something simple. <laughs> and and what you find out, not to suggest the people at Clearview, whoever they are, picked a bad name, but what you're going to find out is that every word, traditional word, has been used in one way or another. So when we told the folks that were helping us to build a name, one of which is now our chief marketing officer. We told them we wanted to really present our name what's important to us. And one is that we were independent and that we were really honest and true independent, meaning always the client first, no conflicts of interest. And so Verdance 
is a combination of the Latin word veritas, which mm, is true, true, and independence. So true independence. I love it. And that's probably a good segue to a question around being a true fiduciary. I know that that's how you describe yourself. So here's my question. Most RIAs describe themselves as true fiduciaries. Most wirehouse advisors, they know they're not necessarily held to the fiduciary standard, but they think of themselves as true fiduciaries, where they would always put their client's best interests first. So to your way of thinking, what's really the difference? Well, I have a saying around here, and that is there are no exceptions, and then there's everything else. (laughs) And so being a true fiduciary is that at the very heart of what you do, you're an advisor. You don't float in and out. There are RAs out there who are great advisors, but they float out of being a fiduciary to sell an annuity or to sell an insurance policy or whatever the case is. Wirehouse advisors, again, I have friends back at Merrill Lynch and other places, great advisors, wonderful people. But nonetheless, there are still products in their mix. They don't even know the fees that are being charged behind the scenes by some of the bigger wirehouses. So they can't really be a true fiduciary. So for us, the model that we built Verdance on from the very beginning was the only revenue we were going to make as a company were the advisory fees, which would be transparent and fair. And the client would know exactly what we were charging for our advice and that everything else, we would be on their side of the table and we would go out to Wall Street and we would find the best opportunities for them and we would pass that through directly to them and not make any money on anything else. No soft dollars. I don't even let my guys go out and take a round of golf from a manager. Nothing. We are a pure advisor. Do you think that an advisor that works at your old firm, Merrill, or at UBS or, or any firm on the street is limited in what they can get access to for clients? I think inherently there are pros and cons to almost every model. And one of the challenges we had, I can't speak to my friends there. I could speak to what we experienced. We had a couple different challenges. One, hidden conflicts of interest where there was what we call scrape, where the client goes through the system and the there's scrape, uh, everyone's scraping a profit. So fees for spreads or for a product to pay all the different aspects of the large business. Secondly, we found that because of risk issues in big wirehouses, the wirehouses had to manage to the lowest common denominator of risk. And so there were challenges we had to go find unique opportunities to clients. And I can give an example private equity. All the private equity deals that were being offered were big. And it was marked as, hey, we get KKR. Well, I can get KKR. Getting KKR or any other big name, popular private equity deal isn't really the issue. It's those small niche plays that really can make a big difference for our clients that aren't available because of, quote unquote, the risk. So yeah, I do think there are restrictions in the big wirehouses, I think there are restrictions if you're too, you're an RIA and you're too small to take advantage of opportunities. It's an interesting niche right in the middle of all of it where I think you get the optimal outcome. And the other thing is you describe yourself as a private wealth advisory firm and you mentioned a multifamily office. The term MFO gets thrown around a lot and it's sexy. What does it mean exactly? And what are the family office type services you're offering your clients? 
Well, one of the reasons there's so many different offerings is because there's so many different opinions and views of what family office is from the client's perspective. Their needs are quite diverse. So from our perspective, the way we look at family office is we want to take a family and we want to deliver three specific opportunities for them. It's the three pillars of our family office offering. One, complexity management, which is time. Time is finite. No matter how much money you have, the clock ticks the same level and at the same speed. And so we want to give clients more time. So what what is that? It's concierge services. It's bill paying. It's basic core services that free the client up to enjoy the lives that they're living, real estate management, et cetera. The second is capital allocation. And I use the term capital, not asset, because a family office client wants to take advantage of the unique opportunities that their wealth brings them. And here's another example where we have an advantage here that we didn't have at Merrill Lynch. They want to bring us opportunities brought to them and have us due diligence of those ideas and give them a point of view. Mm -hmm. They want us to bring them single one-off opportunities to buy into a business or a piece of real estate. They want us to bring them into unique startup deals or funds They want something that is not mainstream, and that's something we spend a tremendous amount of time and effort and financial uh, resources to build. The third is legacy preservation, and that is not just passing the money on, but to educate and to ensure that the next generation understands what the money stands for, what your intentions are. What's the moral fiber that you want to weave into the next generation? That's legacy management. And so those are the three pieces we focus on. And there's a myriad of services that fall under each one of those categories. Let's talk then about some of your motivation in building this business. And I guess it's a good segue to back up the train and ask you a little bit about your work history before Burdens. So let's start with the time at Merrill. You spent about 12 years there until 2012 and wondering what was going on at the time that made you decide to explore options elsewhere at the time you decided to leave Merrill. Yeah, actually, I was at Merrill for almost 15 because I, I started in corporate and then went in production 99. So I, you're right. I was in production for 12 years. And it's interesting, Mindy, I would tell you that up to the very close to the moment I left, I would have said, I'm just going to retire Merrill. I bled Merrill Lynch blue. I loved my time there and I loved my friends and people there. And when you're a big asset manager at Merrill, when you have a big assets under management number, Life is good, and it's almost like uh, it's almost like working while you're sleeping. It's easy, but that's not what we wanted. So there were a couple catalysts that really brought us to come to the decision to leave Merrill. The financial crisis was a big one. I call the financial crisis my moment of discovery, where we we saw, despite just weeks before Merrill went under, being in New York with one of the top people at Merrill and a client who just sold a business and telling us how Merrill was perfectly fine and there was no danger and watching literally weeks later the company on the verge of collapse and rushing into the arms of Bank of America, that was somewhat jarring for us. And from that point forward, we wanted to have better control of the safety of our clients' funds. Secondly, in that process, because of that moment, 
we opened our eyes and it really was now my duty, talk about fiduciary duty, it was my duty to clients not to just stay at Merrill because it's easy, but to actually look around and understand what was out there and not have staying at Merrill be an opt-out decision, but a proactive decision. And when we started to look around, what we found was that the independent space because of the technology revolution in the early 2000s, had become very sophisticated. And I looked at Credit Suisse at one point. I looked at Morgan Stanley at one point. And I kept looking at that and saying, this isn't different. This isn't better. But when we really took a hard look at the independent space, we realized this is it. This is the best source of opportunity for clients as well as the best source of our growth if we're independent and we have a different relationship with clients. I love that answer. And I'll tell you why. First of all, I love the part, if you decided to stay at Merrill, you wanted it to be less an an opt-out decision and more of a proactive one. The way I say it to the people I counsel all the time is exploration and education gives you an opportunity to either determine if there is in fact greener pastures elsewhere and or to stay from a position of greater strength because you've determined that there isn't. But what I will say to you is is something, or I'll ask you something interesting. Just earlier this week, I interviewed Andy Sieg, who, as you know, is now president of Merrill Lynch Wealth Management. And he talked a lot about the good that's going on in Merrill and talked to uh, the picture of how the interconnectivity between Bank of America and Merrill Lynch Advisors gives clients an all under one roof access and some good stuff, undoubtedly some good stuff. But it seemed to me that his perspective is all about the fact, probably, and not just him, but every wirehouse leader, believing that productivity or being successful and the ability to grow your business, having a 600 million under management and growing equals contentment. And you are actually describing the exact opposite of that. I agree with that. I actually asked him that question. I said, do you think that productivity equals contentment? And he said, I don't know about contentment, but that's what advisors want, a platform where they can really grow and be successful. And I actually think advisors want much more than that. So that's a long-winded way of asking you, what do you think? I think you're spot on. Andy, is a he's a terrific guy. And again, I have friends at Merrill and their platform is just different. The way I would respond to that question is a couple. One is we tell clients that we break the business down into three facets. There's custody, which is holding your assets in a safe fashion, which nobody ever thought of until the financial crisis, and executing in an efficient manner. There's advice, right, which is what we do every day, telling folks what to do with their money, how to do, what it means, helping them through decisions. And then there's what I call manufacturing. And manufacturing is the is the production of product to execute on advisory plans, whether it's a stock, a bond, a fund, a private equity deal, whatever it is. And at Merrill or any other wirehouse, they have a shelf that they pull from. And if the best option for the client isn't on their shelf, those advisors are not even legally allowed to let the client or sell away, right? That's illegal to sell away. So that's inherently an issue for me. And I had that issue when I was at Merrill. In terms of, so that's the answer to the NDC question. I love the fact that as an independent, we go anywhere and everywhere 
to find the best outcome for the client. And as an independent, we break down those three different facets. We separate custody, manufacturing, and advice. And having thing, everything under one roof is convenient, but it inhibits competitiveness. And it's the competitive process that turns out to be the best outcome for the client. The answer to your other question is contentment. It's a, it's a great question. I found myself at Merrill making a lot of money, really in a routine, and going on wonderful trips and so forth. And I found myself not having that contentment. Mm. And I found myself really starting to feel that entrepreneurial burn, that fire I had when I, when I was 17 selling copiers, starting to dim. And I started to ask myself, is there a better way? And am I really being a businessman? Am I really being an entrepreneur here? And I wasn't. I thought I was a businessman for for several years, but I realized what I was was a practice manager. And there's an enormous difference between those two. So that bubbled up inside of me. And the financial crisis was the catalyst. It wasn't the reason. It was the catalyst that put me back into that lane, that entrepreneurial lane. And you know, I'll, I'll fast forward. I ended up at Hightower for a little while. Yep. And this answers your your question. What I remember very distinctly was my first trip to Hightower. I went and I looked at all the different attributes of Hightower and what they were doing. And it was my first trip and I came home and my wife, we've been together since we were 18. So she knows me well. My wife looked at me and said, what? You could see it in my face. <laughs> she said, what? And I said, I'm leaving Merrill. And she said, you're going to Hightower? And I said, I have no idea. But after what I saw today, I know I can't stay where I am. Mm, you couldn't unsee it once you saw it. I love that. So that's my next question for you. So you left Merrill more than a decade ago to join the first iteration of Hightower, Hightower 1.0, which was their partnership model. And at the time, I believe you and every other advisor in that iteration were offered a mix of upfront cash and equity as W-2 employees. And that was groundbreaking, transformative for the industry. I remember Elliot Weisbluth asking me what I thought, and I said, no advisors are going to go to some unknown name Hightower and go for only 100% when they can get to close to 200% upfront. But he proved me wrong in a big way. So my question to you is this. You joined them then. It was about four years into their history and before the firm completely transformed its strategy. So what was it? Why Hightower? What was it specifically about Hightower that intrigued you, that made you say after visiting them, I'm leaving? And why were you willing to go for 100% cash and 100% equity versus an offer much bigger from just about any other traditional firm on the street. There's there's quite a bit to unpack there, uh, Mindy. First, you know, the offer of cash. You know, obviously the equity didn't turn out to be 100%, but my offer from the other wirehouses was far far greater than 200. I had a big business, and we ran our business like a business, which was attractive to them. Uh, very much today, like today, we run our, our business like a platform business. So the easy decision was take the check and you're done. Hightower was a unique offering. The answer to Hightower specifically, we had decided that we wanted to be independent. We had gotten that far. But again, there's a certain realization, and I encourage new entrepreneurs, never let your ego get in the way 
and be honest with yourself. And I think when we looked at ourselves honestly, we realized we didn't know how to run a business. I didn't know anything about being the the CEO of an RIA at that time. I had to learn. And we just thought learning on the back of our clients wasn't fair to our clients, that we were already going to create a lot of change for them. So Hightower made sense. The original reason that attracted me to Hightower was that they were going to be the business wrapper around what would be an independent practice. I could be independent. I could be a fiduciary. And I had this business partner to take care of all of Mm -hmm. these unique facets that you don't think of sitting in an office at Merrill Lynch. And so that was an incredibly attractive offering. And that's what I saw that day when I was there the first time. But that wasn't the reason. The reason why I chose Hightower was I started to meet the partners. And back then, Elliot was bringing in very large teams almost exclusively. We were bringing in the the big teams from the wirehouses. It was a hyper-growth environment. It was hyper-collaborative. There was a lot of idea exchange. There was a lot of energy. I say it all the time, and I'll say it on this conversation, in this conversation, it was the best decision I made in my career Mm. because I was able to become an independent. I was able to learn how to be a businessman in that business specifically, but I also met wonderful people that I'm still very close with who also gave me tremendous insight on how to be a better advisor and how to be a better partner. And we, that learning experience was invaluable to what is now Verdance. So it was the partners and going and seeing the partners interaction with each other that was the difference. Okay. So then five years later, or five years ago, rather, you moved off the Hightower platform and started your own RIA. So what was the motivation for that? What changed? Well, I was heavily involved in Hightower. I was in the advisory council of management, and I was a a heavily engaged partner and an energized partner. I would say somewhere, you know, several years after I got there, there was a change in focus from what I originally came in. You know, there was talk about becoming a publicly traded company. They were starting to change their model of how they bring in new teams. And what I saw was the shift was to a different business model. And again, not to say it was a good or bad shift. It was just different than why I came. We were one of the larger teams that we were growing very fast. And we had very large aspirational visions. And Hightower, which started as come over and and be a crazy entrepreneur and and do wild things and grow, suddenly wanted us to kind of conform. And that's fine, but our vision was different to the direction that they were going. So we had numerous conversations with Hightower about what we were trying to do. And over a multi-month conversation process, I think both sides realized we were just headed in two very different directions. So well in advance, a year before we left, both parties agreed that it was time to split the companies up. And we were really excited about going 100 miles an hour in the direction that we envisioned. Mm. I love the fact what you're saying is no regrets for having joined Hightower. You learned, you met great people, you learned how to be a business owner, and clearly you might have grown apart, 
but it set you up for extraordinary success. So actually, I wanted to circle back to what you said. I mean, the firm has grown, your business has grown 5x in little more than 10 years. And you said the first tranche of growth came from 600 million to 1.3 billion in the five years between 2012 and 2017. And then the next tranche was 1.3 billion to where you are today at about 3 billion. So talk to us a little bit about what's been most responsible for those tranches of growth and how did they differ in those two periods? Sure. The first period is is at Hightower. So in the first period, for us, it was take a step back for a year. And in both cases, it's interesting, our growth happened in even sharper spurts because the transition year going from Merrill to Hightower, there's really not time for growth. It's really about stabilization, getting our clients comfortable again. If I had just gone to Morgan Stanley, maybe it would have been easy, but this was something completely different. So once we got everything stabilized, then we could focus on being independent and taking advantage of the opportunities that independence brings and the different relationship model. And we were learning how to be independent. We were learning how to be fiduciaries. It sounds simple, right? Just be it. But when you're speaking the same language for so long at a wirehouse, you you literally have to learn to change the way you think about things. And so over the next four years, that's when the growth started to kick in. And part of it was bringing in a lot of new clients And part of it was being smart in the business. But the other part was telling people our vision and starting to recruit folks, bringing in partners from Merrill Lynch and Wells Fargo and starting to bring people who believed in our culture. And we haven't talked about this yet, Mindy, but we're culture fanatics. And so when we started to have folks buy into our cultural vision, they wanted to be a part of it. And that started the first stage of growth at Hightower. So talk to us, you say fanatics about culture. What does that mean exactly? What does that look like? Everything we do is about people, right? So the clients first, as I said, architect the business that the client would want us to build. And our people are incredibly important to us. And I know that's always said, and I know it's cliche, but the reality is this is family here. We spend a lot of time together. I care deeply about the people. We care deeply about each other. And so this business is designed not only for the client's success, but for everybody in this building's success. I have a saying here. I want our folks to run 100 miles an hour and feel like they're walking. That's our culture. And what I mean by that is everybody's given this God-given gift, whatever it is, and we want to find out. And I think we're pretty good at finding great people of great character who can be great family members and then find out what their unique skill is and then let them do it all day long and they will operate with massive productivity. They'll give better outcomes to clients. Clients recognize their energy and it overall just drives productivity. And the only way to be successful with that, Mindy, is you have to have a hyper-collaborative culture. Everyone has to work together and trust the culture so that if someone is great at A, they know somebody else who does Z very well is got their back and is doing that at their maximum potential. And so if you're going to have that culture, you have to have a culture of trust. You have to have a culture of caring. And that includes how we compensate people, how we create benefits programs. It's how we interact with each other. It's the time we spend together, the laughs we have in in here. This should be a place where we enjoy being, and it should be a place where everybody feels confident 
in the growth of their careers. And I imagine that all of that translates into something the client sets. Our clients talk about it all the time. They come in and especially new prospects, they come in and they say, we just feel it. You guys are different. We feel it. And it's the energy level. One thing that we do when we meet a new potential prospect, they may meet 15, 20 people on the team in their process. We're not hiding anybody in the back corner. We want our our clients and our prospects to meet everybody, talk to everybody and engage with everybody because we know we have great people of great character. So yes, this all drives growth. I think the important facet to this though is you have to truly be a fanatic, not just say it. You got to believe it and you got to live it. It's easy to talk about all this stuff. And then as I said in, earlier in our in our conversation, there's no exceptions and there's everything else. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to have that family collaborative culture, you've got to live it. You can't just talk about it. Yeah. It's got to be true and authentic. I think what you shared about that is a great lesson, even for me as a business owner who I am fiercely protective of culture and being really true to who we are and living it through every person in the organization. What you shared is really a gift, and I thank you for that. And I'm just going to expand on that real quick. There have been on more than one occasion, but I'll never forget the first, When we were still young and still really just taking off, we met, and obviously no names, but we met with a very, very large producer at Morgan Stanley who came in and sat with us. And in two meetings, the person had genuine interest, but it was clear that this person was not a culture fit. You had a no jerk rule, right? It it was. (laughs) and, And at the time when we're trying to kickstart our growth, this would have been an enormous victory from a number standpoint or from a a PR standpoint. But we were two meetings in and we literally called the individual and said, hey, not a fit. We appreciate the time and good luck. And I could tell you the individual was stunned, but you have to be true no matter how tempting it is. Yeah, that's a great example. And that is not easy to do, particularly when you are in building mode. But that's where so many organizations go wrong. They're tempted by, especially amongst first responders, hiring big names, but it doesn't necessarily do anything to foster the culture. But let's go back to how that culture has really impacted growth. That next tranche from $1.3 billion to $3 billion, And I know recently you sold a stake in Verdon's to Emigrant Partners, which is a prolific investor in the RIA space. So why now? What was the motivation for that? And how did that impact past growth and future growth? Sure. I think I heard two questions. One is the growth of how we got up to that point, but I'll take it from Emigrant. When we started talking to potential capital investors, we were a couple of years in the business. We were building our platforms out. We have a sophisticated institutional level investment platform, a private equity platform, our family office platform, et cetera, et cetera. And what we were doing was we were building a business that was scalable. And one thing we focused on, and it's I think it's one of the reasons why we're growing fast, and we think we're on the absolute dawn of another explosion of assets here, is we focused on the platform before the growth. And we invested in the platform before the growth was here. We're never afraid to invest in front of our growth. If you wait until you've already gotten there to put the money in, then your business is always stressed and that slows growth down. And the client feels that stress. 
And you never want to hear your clients say, oh, you know, I remember the way it used to be, or you're getting pretty big now. Mm -hmm. What you want the client to say is, this is great. I saw what you did. That's incredible. What does that mean to me? You want the client invested in your growth strategy. And our clients are, they get excited about the different changes that we make here in the investments. And so as we were building this platform out, we were really excited about the direction. We, we measure everything. We always know when big growth changes are coming. And we were, we were excited about the direction we were headed. There was a moment which really changed the direction or the trajectory of, of Verdance. We were talking to an RIA, a very good one, and we were talking to them about joining our firm. And at the time, uh, we were smaller then. They were about half the size of us. And the conversation had progressed well. And then one day, when we were close to the end, the client looked at our balance sheet. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we've got a startup balance sheet, and we paid Hightower some money to leave. So we had some debt that we decided to take. And they looked at our balance sheet. And when we look at it, we were like, yeah, that's no big deal. We, you know, we're growing. This is our vision. They didn't see it that way. They looked and said, wait a minute. What about this? And what about this? And we took a different look at how we're viewed by the outside world. And then we started to look at our growth plan and how we were going to capitalize our growth plan. And we came to the conclusion at the time where we didn't need the money. And this is the key if you're ever going to take a capital partner on. We were in great shape. We had a great balance sheet. We had clear growth plans. We had plenty of earnings, but we said, no, if we're going to really do the growth strategy we want and really accelerate our growth, that a capital partner really is going to be essential. And I use the word capital partner, not capital. That's really important, Mindy. We did not select Emigrant because they have money. We selected them because they're a great partner. And going back to culture, we needed somebody who understood our culture, who believed in what we were doing, who understood that we wanted to grow, wanted to be a part of that growth, not just fund it, not just what's my rate of return or send me your books, but somebody who is engaged with our business. And we did a very long search because quite frankly, we didn't want to sell anything, but we decided that having that capital partner for future growth having the right capital partner with permanent capital made a lot of sense. I should say too, by the way, we sold very little. We really just sold enough to establish a relationship with Emigrant and none of us pulled a single penny out. The 100% of the capital stayed in the business as growth capital to make future investments. Yeah. What's so great about the business today is that there is so much choice. And one of the places where there are choice is that there are so many investors of all shapes and sizes and kinds that see what you see and what I see, how spectacular a well-run independent wealth management business is. And the other thing that's really interesting, and you just mentioned it, is this category of minority investors. So nobody wants to sell equity. Everyone loves 100% control. But at the end of the day, just what you said, the best investors are ones that are willing to take a minority, make a minority investment, but be able to add value equal to or greater than the amount of capital they put in. Well, 100%. And Carl and his team at Emigrant are fabulous partners. They're knowledgeable. They know the business. They have connected the partnership. It's not the same as what it was at Hightower because we were all W-2 employees together, but they're connecting 
the principals at these firms and the different level executives at these firms. And they're giving us collaboration that obviously, again, that's part of our culture. And they're honest, they're straightforward. And I think the test is we're every bit as happy a year later than we were the day before or the day we got the money. That's huge. I love it. Okay. So let's talk about the future then. What's next for Verdance and how how do you foresee putting that capital to work? Well, and we have been putting the capital to work. So the future of Verdance now is we have built out the core platform for us to grow exponentially. And we want to now build this brand into a national brand. Part of our culture is that there are many people here who have been here 20, 30 years who started, you know, was my, my partner Avery and my partner Brian started, you know, essentially doing administrative work and now are full partners. There are my, um, you know, there are executives here that started 12 years ago and have taken on C-level positions. Part of that culture is that you have to be honest and you have to, you really have to be honest with your people. What are you building? Are you building something to sell? Are you building something? And we're building something here. We're not building something to sell. We want to build a multi-generational company um, that has a national footprint. And, um, and we want to be a place that is known as a great place for an advisor to go and grow their business, a place that they're going to love being at, that they trust, and that they know they have growth partners, right? Growth focus partners. To do that, we've had to build out our platform. And as I said, we've built our platforms out to a level that far exceeds the current need. Um, and we've done that with some spectacular people um, in the investments and the planning and the family office space. So as we build out those platforms, now our job is to A, help our current advisors manage their existing businesses and give their clients del- absolutely delightful outcomes and grow their businesses, bring in new clients that can take advantage of these platforms. And we've given them um, an infrastructure that allows them to spend more time with their clients, um, which they love. Mm. Our our other model for growth, obviously then, is to bring new advisors into the fold. And that comes in two forms. One, there's a lot of people here that know the wirehouse business, right? Tom knew our president came from Morgan Stanley. He managed a very big operation for Morgan Stanley. I was there. A lot of my partners were there. So we think we're a great home for wirehouse advisors who really want to be in an independent model that affords them the ability to grow their practices larger than they ever expected, which is what we've done with our practices here. The other, obviously, is other RIAs. We are absolutely in the acquisition space. But again, we're not geographically focused, we're people focused. We want to find people who believe in what we're doing in our culture and want to grow with us over the long term. We're really excited about expanding our footprint. Yeah. And I imagine, I mean, it's a whole nother podcast episode to talk about the potential to take what's 3 billion to 6 billion and beyond by adding inorganic growth to what's already spectacular organic growth. Well, the one thing that I think we offer and the people we're talking to today recognize is we're a proven organic growth engine. We've proven the ability to grow organically through our platforms and through our collaborative culture. The way we look at inorganic growth, quite frankly, is 
we want to find growth hubs. We want to find new growth engines. So whether it's an RIA in Florida, uh, by the way, RIAs in Florida, we want to come to Florida, uh, or it's a, a wirehouse advisor who has a great practice and is a great advisor, but wants to be independent. We look at those not as inorganic growth. I just look at those as growth hubs. If we can bring those folks in and inorganically, sure, that helps the business. But the way we view them is what we can make them, mm-hmm. right? what we can build around them. And that's when it really gets exciting to have a conversation. Yeah, I love it. And how about your succession plans, Leo? I guess I just do this until they take me out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, my succession plan is I'm still pretty young, thank God. I plan on doing this for a long time. Running this business is the most rewarding, exciting, fun thing I've ever done. And yet I'm working harder than I ever have in my life. And I think that's one of the big differences. My wife, as I mentioned with her earlier, she knows we're having a great time here. We're really enjoying this. So succession plan, what does that look like? We continue to build folks from the base level into the mid-level up to the highest level running the firms. I would love to see my kids, one, two, any of them come in or my partner's kids come in, be a part of this experience. We want to continue to build young talent into partners. And I don't know who will run this firm in 20 years, but I want to make sure that we've established a sound infrastructure so that we can bring in talent to continue to run the business. That's my dream. Yeah. And it's an awesome dream. Just one other question, Leo, any other areas of growth you are working on or expecting to come online that you're proud of? Yes, absolutely. Um, Our latest growth platform is Verdance OCIO. So we've just recently launched OCIO. Like everything else we've done, we don't just start with a name and then back into it. We've spent over two years building OCIO, getting ready for this launch. Megan Horneman, our chief investment officer, has built out the model platforms. Matt Angelot, who will run this for us, who also is one of the best private equity guys in the business. The two of them have teamed together with our marketing head, Michelle Welsh, to really build an outstanding offering from a content standpoint, an investment standpoint, a private equity offering. We're really, really excited about this. I think we're going to see growth in two specific areas. One is obviously whatever revenue we get from OCIO itself. And we think that OCIO will be a growth driver for small RIAs. I mean, there's no question that the power of this offering is going to really open the door for growth. I think the other area where we're equally excited, if not more, is being introduced to people who think entrepreneurial. For a small RIA or a breakaway wirehouse advisor who's starting their own practice, to have the presence of mind to look at what we're going to offer in our platform versus what they have to build individually and say, hey, that makes sense. That's better for my client and better for my growth. That's exactly the person we want to talk to in terms of an acquisition potential down the road. So great to date before you get married. And OCIO is is going to be just a spectacular opportunity for that. I love it. So I want to wrap up by asking you three rapid fire questions. And I started asking my guests these questions just recently because I think we would love to get a sense of what the most successful in the advisors do and how they think. So my first question, what is your morning routine? I get up every morning about 4.35 o'clock. 
I get out of bed, have some coffee, do some reading, go down, I work out, and then I come up, finish my reading, get a shower, and either head to the office or head out wherever I'm going to meet with whoever I'm meeting. That's my routine. Okay. I love it. How about the best business books you've read that helped inform your success? Yeah, Good to Great was a pretty powerful book for me. I took a lot of of different insights from that book, and I read all three of his books. And I would say that's probably the biggest business impact of the books. Mm. I've read other investment books. You know, I read Warren Buffett's book. I've read, obviously, the classic value investing, which you know those formed my life as an advisor, but good to great as a, as a business uh, head. I agree with you. I read it too, and it, it rocked my world. And how about last question? What was your favorite failure? Uh, where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> my favorite failure was the four plus years from the time I liked girls to the time I got my wife to agree to date me that she turned me down. I failed constantly and I never gave up. I was persistent and eventually got her to go out on a date and We've been together for 35 years since. Oh, I love it. Well, you speak lovingly about her. You've mentioned her three times in the past hour and lucky her and lucky you. So we've taken up enough of your time. This has been beyond delightful, beyond informative. I'm grateful not only for your time, but your generosity and transparency. And can't wait to see what the future brings, how you get from $3 billion to that next explosion of growth you're talking about. Thank you, Mindy. It was an absolute pleasure. And and let me just say, this was a lot of fun. You are an absolute pioneer in the business. You've been one of the great entrepreneurs in the business, and it is my pleasure to spend this time with you. Uh, Thank you so much. Leo has built an extraordinary firm, one based on taking culture beyond a cliche and making it a part of every facet of Verdance. Yet it's his notion of designing a firm as if the client is the architect that really resonates. Valuable advice for any advisor or business owner considering their own practice model. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way of staying informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. You can feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 973 476 8578, which is my cell, or my email mdiamond at diamond consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And keep in mind that our services are available without cost to the advisor. You can see our website for more information. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. If you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, I'd be grateful if you gave it a store rating and a review. It will let other advisors know it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.